John chapter 1, verses 47 to 49. We'll read actually 47 to 51, but today we will cover 47 to 49. The Son of God and the King of Israel. Son of God and King of Israel. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Let's pray. Our Father, we are approaching you through your word because you have revealed yourself through the living and abiding word of God. This word of truth that is refined like gold and silver in the fire many times, purely, it is now given to us, and we receive it, Lord, in faith, and we pray that you will teach us from this word of truth what it means to have uh, a pure heart, and we pray that you'll also teach us what this pure heart confesses about our Lord Jesus Christ, for we ask in his name, amen. In this part of John, at the end of John chapter 1, we remember that Philip, Philip, one of the earlier disciples, very early uh, or uh, very recently compared to Nathaniel, Philip uh, encountered Christ, and then Philip had a desire to tell his friend, likely his friend, from uh, a city where they were from, from Bethsaida, to tell Nathaniel while they are going on their way back to the, the city in Galilee. And Nathaniel first is skeptical of what Philip says. Philip says, we have found the Messiah, but Nathanael says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And though he was skeptical at first, he was not unreasonable. He was not unreasonable. He was willing to check the evidence because Philip said to him, come and see. And now we have Jesus encountering Nathanael, and that's how this chapter closes with Jesus and Nathanael in this dialogue. And in our part, the focus is on the person or the character of Nathanael. And then once Nathanael knows who is talking to him, what he confesses, what he says as a declaration of his faith in Christ, that Christ is a rabbi, a true rabbi, the son of God and the king of Israel. Let's learn from this narrative here. John chapter 1, verse 47. Remember, Philip said, come and see. So when Philip and Nathanael are walking together, going together to see Jesus Christ, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him. Nathanael came to see Jesus, but Jesus, as we see in verse 47, he already has his own sights on Nathanael. Jesus already is first in noticing Nathanael. And we will see from verse 48, 
He says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So even before I saw you with my visible eyes, I saw you with my spiritual eyes because I am the Son of God. I possess deity and I knew where you were and I knew what you were doing over there under the fig tree. I knew all of that before I actually saw you. But to Nathaniel's credit, look at verse 47. Philip had invited him to come and see, and to Nathaniel's credit, Nathaniel comes to him. Nathaniel comes to him. Nathaniel was not so skeptical of the things of God that he did not have curiosity, that he did not have objectivity, that he did not realize that his life was needing this Savior, this Messiah, this Redeemer, the Messiah or the Christ that was so prophesied from the book of Genesis throughout the Old Testament to the book of Malachi, prophesied from the time of the creation of the world until his time, which had been about 4,000 years. Messiah or Christ had been predicted or prophesied for 4,000 years from the time of Adam all the way until the time of Malachi. And after the time of Malachi, about 400 BC, for that 400-year period, the Jewish people, based on the Old Testament writings, they were looking for the coming of Christ, the Messiah. They were coming and looking and anticipating his time. Nathaniel would have been like that. So when Philip says to him, come and see, though he had a measure of skepticism, a measure of doubt, he was not so incredulous that he would not go and check it out. And that's the true character Uh, the character of a, a person who is truly seeking the truth. If somebody is seeking the truth, he may not understand everything, he may not know everything, and none of us knows everything and understands everything. We're not omniscient. We don't have all knowledge as God does. But when someone tells us we should not dismiss it, we should not completely reject it, we should consider the truth claims of the person speaking to us. This has happened to all of us before we came to Christ. Somebody had to preach to us. Somebody had to explain to us the truths of the gospel, right? And if we were entirely skeptical, then we would not have pursued it at that time. But when we overcame our skepticism, when we desire to know more knowledge, more truth, then we pursued what we heard. And we pursued it to the point of our salvation. The salvation of our souls was the result of what we pursued. But in the same way, we have to do so with others. There will be others that we meet day by day. Some of them are our own relatives. Some of them are our friends. Some of them are co-workers. Some of them are strangers in stores and wherever we encounter them. When we encounter people, we will... We need to pray that they are of the Nathaniel type. Pray, Lord, uh, pray to the Lord and ask the Lord, Lord, I know so-and-so looks like he's an unworthy candidate. He may be an unimpressive person, an ugly person, a short person, a very whatever person, person who doesn't uh, take care of himself, a person who's got a foul mouth, a person who is a poor man, a person that you don't expect to believe. You, we, we don't expect certain people to believe when we first encounter them, but you never know. And in the case of Philip and Nathaniel, they did what was right. They pursued the matter, and we should also pursue the matter and invite people to come and see and pray that they are of the Nathaniel type that will actually come. Don't give up. Keep 
asking people, keep inviting people, keep mentioning the gospel to them. So Philip actually does come. Well, then Christ, in verse 47, um, when he sees Nathanael coming, said of him. He said of him. Now, when it says said of him, there were at least uh, Philip and Nathanael there. Perhaps there were others also there. Jesus does not say it directly to Nathanael, but says it about Nathanael in the hearing of Nathanael. We do know it is in the hearing of Nathanael because of verse 48. How do you know me? You just said something of me that I don't have any guile. You just said that, but how do you know anything about me? So Nathanael heard the words, but Jesus did not say the words directly to him, but to others. In other words, he is commending Nathanael in the presence of Nathanael's friends so that his friends understand that you have brought to me, this Nathanael, a a believer. You have brought to me a saved man. That's who you have brought to me. And I am explaining this commendation to all of you and even in the hearing of Nathanael. Now, this will also teach us another truth. Why is it sometimes that we shrink back from commending others? Why is it that we don't directly, or even in the presence of other people, commend or appreciate the goodness or the good deed or the character of another person? We should not be so resistant to doing so that we sin against God and sin against the person. Because in this case, Jesus, he could have said so about Nathaniel outside of his presence. So that Nathaniel never heard it. But when Nathaniel hears it, for whose benefit is this? It's for the hearer's benefit, and it's also for Nathaniel's benefit. You see what I'm saying here? That when we commend someone and the commendation, the, the appreciation, the compliment is deserved, if it is a well-deserved compliment, then we should compliment. It doesn't matter who's there. If it's true, it's true no matter whether the receiver hears it or not, right? But even if the receiver hears it, we should say it. And why is it that sometimes people don't commend others? Well, I don't want him to be proud. I don't want it to go to his head. I don't want him to start boasting about it like that. We say things like that, but the Bible does not permit us to say those things. If something is true about another person and it is deserving a commendation, a compliment, thanksgiving, then we should say it. It doesn't matter who's there. Even in the hearing of the person that we're talking about, just say it. If it's true, it's true, so say it. Did not the Apostle Paul do the same to the Corinthians? The Corinthians had had some conflicts in their church, but did he not write a letter and at the beginning of the letter commend them for the gifts that they have, commend them for the knowledge that they have, commend them in those ways. Yes, he does so in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He commends them in that way. And we should do the same. Next we have in verse 47, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. No guile. Guile is another word for deceit. No deceit. Uh, no deception in him. 
He's without guile. We see that Christ says, Behold an Israelite indeed. When the scripture says behold, it usually is calling our attention to something amazing or something unusual. Amazing or unusual, behold, look, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. It was not common for the people of Israel to have somebody like Nathaniel, who was without deceit, without guile, without hypocrisy. What was true on the inside of him was manifested on the outside of him. This was a genuine believer in the gospel. Nathaniel was. He was like that. And so we might ask the question, why is it so unusual? Why is it so unusual for an Israelite? Because he says an Israelite indeed. He has the name of Israelite, but he is a true Israelite. Indeed, he is an Israelite. And why would this be amazing? Just think, when the nation of Israel was established, when it was established, firstly, they became numerous in the land of Egypt, and then they became a nation technically and fully once Joshua conquered the Canaanites and they established themselves in the land of Canaan. But during that whole period, between the time that they were in Egypt and throughout their history, If you think about the 12 tribes and think about their history from the time of Moses and throughout the Old Testament until the book of Kings, the book of 2 Kings, chapters 17 to 25, by that point, we have from the time of Moses, about 1500 BC to 722 and 586 BC, when the people of Israel were destroyed as a nation. They were one nation, then they became two nations. By 722, the one nation was completely obliterated. And then the the other nation, the southern kingdom, was obliterated in 586 B.C. From 1500 B.C., from the time of Moses until that point. Were the 12 tribes and all in the 12 tribes believers without deceit? No. If you just read any cursory reading, even superficial reading of the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, any cursory reading of those books will manifest clearly that the vast majority of the people were idolaters. The vast majority of the people were wicked. The vast majority of the people did not care about the truths of God, the word of God. They followed the practices of the nations. They practiced all of the sins of the surrounding nations, their neighbors. They did whatever was all around them. They were not concerned. That means that the history of the people throughout the Old Testament was not a history that was without deceit. They were full of deceit, constantly full of deceit. And even in the days of Jesus, in the days of Jesus, did the vast majority of the Jewish people believe in John the Baptist? No. Did the vast majority and even the religious leaders of the day, did they believe in Jesus Christ? No. In the time of the apostles in the book of Acts, did they believe in what Peter preached? Did they believe in what Paul preached? No, they did not. Yes, some of them did, a few of them did, but not the vast majority of them. So, in terms of the number of people that existed and had the name Israel, that had that honorable name Israel to name their nation after 
or even their tribes after, like that, to name themselves like that, they did not live up to the name. Very few of them lived up to the name. That's why when Jesus sees Nathanael, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed. An Israelite indeed. You are living up to the name. And how is he living up to the name? In whom is no guile or deceit. There is no guile, no deceit, no fraud in him. He is a genuine, true believer in the gospel. His heart has been changed. His life has been changed. He's not the way he was when he was born into the world. He is now a new man. He is now a new creation. He has a new heart, and he seeks to follow the gospel of God. That's the kind of man Nathaniel is when Jesus meets him. Now, we need to clarify this. We need to clarify this fact uh, of how Nathaniel is described because the Bible does not use this word Israelite in one way. The Bible does not use the word Israel or Israelite in only one way. It uses it in several ways. Let me enumerate them for you. There are at least six ways in which the Bible uses the name Israel. And we'll see from the last point that Nathaniel fits the last point. All right? The first one is the Bible uses the name um, Israel as the new or the second name of the patriarch Jacob. The new or the second name, the alternate name of the patriarch Jacob. Remember, Isaac and Rebekah had twins. Esau was the firstborn. Esau and Jacob, the secondborn, those were their two sons. Jacob was his birth name, but later in his life, such as in Genesis chapter 32, Genesis chapter 32, verse 27 and verses 27 and 28, the Lord said to him, so he, that is the Lord, said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, that is the Lord, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel then becomes an alternate or second new name of Jacob. Now, why would that be significant? The name Israel itself means um, strive with God or God strives, strive with God, like he was wrestling with God. But the name Jacob means deceiver, supplanter. It means deceiver or supplanter, one who exploits, takes advantage of another. That's what Jacob means. His birth name was that, because that's what he did coming out of the womb. That's what he was, and then once he was an adult, he behaved that way towards his brother Esau. So that's why he was given this name, Jacob. But now that Jacob is a new man, then we don't need to refer to him by his old name exclusively. We can to remind ourselves of the way he used to be, just like the Bible continues to use the name Rahab the harlot to describe Rahab, even though she was converted from being a wicked, idolatrous woman to being a a believer in the gospel. The Bible still does so in Hebrews 11. 31 and in 
James chapter 2, 2, uh, 2, 14 to 26. So in those places, Rahab is still called the harlot. Well, Jacob is still called Jacob sometimes, the man is, and sometimes he's called Israel. But Israel is his new name because it signifies a change in him that God is bringing about. Number two, number two, another way the word Israel is used. It is the name of the nation of the 12 tribes. It's the name of the nation of the 12 tribes under kings Saul, David, and Solomon. Under the kings Saul, David, and Solomon. And each of those kings reigned for 40 years. That means for 120 years, the 12 tribes as a nation, the Bible refers to them as Israel. For example, when David, when David was king over all 12 tribes, when he was king over all 12 tribes, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. He's doing so in order to move the Ark of the Covenant from one place to another. And here, he gathered who? Whom? All the chosen men of Israel. Why, why does it say Israel? Because now, as ruler or king over all 12 tribes, he is their king. And simply referred to as Israel. Number three. This word Israel or name Israel is also the name of the nation of the northern tribes between the time of Jeroboam, their king, to the time of Hosea, their king. From the time of Jeroboam to the time of Hosea, the the northern tribes, they separated from the southern tribes in 930 B.C. And in 930 B.C. to 722 B.C., the name Israel has a reference to the northern kingdom, the northern tribes. They gave their name, their nation the name Israel. That's the name for that section. But that was only for about a 200-year period. They were known as the nation of Israel in the north. And how do we know this? Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. Jeremiah chapter 3, Verse 6. It says in 3 6, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. And I thought, After she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. And it came about because of the lightness of her harlotry that she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet, in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception." declares the Lord. Here in Jeremiah 3, notice in verse 6, faithless Israel, faithless Israel, and also in verse 8, faithless Israel. God is calling the northern kingdom, 
that had already been destroyed by the time of Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet lived around 600 BC. That means for about 120 years before Jeremiah, before his ministry, 120 years before, that northern kingdom, God now calls it faithless. You saw what they did and how I got rid of them. I sent them away. And Judah, now the southern kingdom called Judah, they didn't learn from that lesson. A distinction is made here between the north and the south. So that also shows us from this passage that the southern kingdom that did not separate with the northern tribes, they were called Judah primarily, but not exclusively. The southern kingdom is also on occasion called Israel. Not to confuse you, but sometimes they are called Israel. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 26. 2, 26. As the thief is shamed when he is discovered, so the house of Israel is shamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. But where are your gods, which you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Who is the addressee of Jeremiah? The nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. That's not usually called Israel because the north was usually called that. But sometimes even the southern kingdom, Judah, that practices idolatry, Jeremiah, through the word of God, is taunting them. He's taunting them. He says, you had no shame. In verse 26, they are called the house of Israel. You don't have any uh, shame. So if you don't have any shame, I'm going to shame you. And how am I going to shame you? I'm going to punish you. And when you do have trouble, you're going to call on me, the true God, and say, arise and save us, Lord. You're going to say, say that. But what is God going to say to Judah when he sends them away? Where are your gods which you made for yourself? Go call out to them. Let them save you. And who is he addressing? He says in verse 28, O Judah, Judah. So this word Israel is also occasionally for the southern kingdom, typically typically called Judah. Then number five, number five. That was just number four. Now number five. It is also the name Israel is a name of Christ. Christ is called Israel in Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 3. Isaiah 49, 3. We'll read verses 1 to 4. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver, and he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. In your Bibles, if you have a translation of the Bible that capitalizes pronouns 
that refer to the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If you have a Bible that does so, your Bible will capitalize this reference to Christ. This is a dialogue between the Father and the Son. And notice in verse 1, it says, The Lord called me, the M of me in my Bible is capitalized, from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. Me is also capital M. We know that Christ was called um, Jesus when he was um, made mention of in Matthew chapter 1, 1, 18 to 25. Jesus was named when he was yet um, in his mother's womb. And then verse, um, verse 3, And he, the Father, said to me, the Son, You are my servant. My S is also capitalized for servant. And who is the servant? My servant, Israel. So God gives this term of endearment to Christ, his son, and he calls him this name Israel. My servant, Israel. This is a reference to Christ. And then finally, and this is a significant one as well, number six. This name Israel is the name of the elect believers in Christ among Jews and Gentiles. This name Israel is a term of endearment, a beloved term that God uses to address us as the elect believers in Christ among Jews and Gentiles. So the one body of people that is a collection, a gathering of Jews and Gentiles We might say the people of God, the church, the elect, the believers, the sheep, right? The the sheep of his pasture. We are that, that is the name Israel. God calls us Israel. If you still have your place in Isaiah, Isaiah 44. Isaiah chapter 44. 44 and verse 5. 44, 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. Or your Bible might say, that one will be called, will be called by the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. So who are these people that are going to say, I am the Lord's, and will be known by the name of Jacob or will be known by the name of Israel and say that we belong to the Lord. And when we say the name Israel or Jacob, we're not saying it in a dishonorable way, but with an honorable way, as it says in verse 5. We'll name Israel's name with honor. It will be us. It will be us because it says in verse 3, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So the people who truly know God, who belong to him, are known by the name of Jacob or Israel, according to Isaiah 44, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56 Someone may say, well, that's not clear that it mentions the Gentiles or those from other nations. Well, 
If that's not clear enough from Isaiah 44, Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, verse 6. 56, 6. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath, and holds fast My covenant, even those I will bring to My holy mountain, and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on My altar. For My house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. In verse 6, he says foreigners. In verse 7, he says his house of prayer is for all the peoples. Our Lord Jesus, he quoted this verse in Matthew 21, 13. Matthew 21, 13, uh, that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So all the nations, the foreigners, they also will hear of the gospel. And notice in verse 8 it says, The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares. The dispersed of Israel. Israel is dispersed here, there, and everywhere. They are scattered throughout the world. And he says in verse 8, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. So some are already gathered among Jews, and then others will be gathered by the Lord to the Jews. And who are the others? The foreigners or the peoples of the earth into one body. And what will their name be? It will be Israel, according to verse 8. Or in verse 5, verse 5, also addressing the foreigners in verse 5, to them I will give In my house and within my walls, a memorial, a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. The name of Israel is this name that they will have that is better than the name that they used to have. Foreigners don't have the name Israel, but now they will have the name Israel because of the significance of the redemption that is found in Christ. Romans chapter 2. Romans Chapter 2. This has always been the case. This has always been the case, and Paul explicitly speaks of that in Romans chapter 2. Romans 2.25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law... Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Verse 25, if you are physically circumcised and you practice the law, 
then good. But if you are physically circumcised, as Jewish men were, and you don't practice the law, then you have invalidated, you have nullified that physical circumcision. It's worthless to you. What's the point of having something external if it doesn't match with the internal change of heart? What's the point, he says? Then also, in 26, if therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That is, if a Gentile who is not typically circumcised, if he keeps the requirements of the law, is he not better than you, you Jew, who don't keep the requirements of the law? If he rejects his idolatry and you keep practicing idolatry, you Jew, won't the Gentile be better than you because he doesn't practice idolatry, yet you still do? He's uncircumcised, but you are circumcised, so he is better than you. All you have is something that happened to your flesh, but he doesn't have that, but he obeys me. He loves me. He does not worship idols. We have examples of this in the Bible, right? We have examples. Weren't the Ninevites, weren't the Ninevites uncircumcised people? When Jonah went to preach to them, were they not uncircumcised? Yes. And yet Jonah preached and they repented and they loved the Lord and feared the Lord. So they are better than the people of Israel. And remember, Jonah was from the northern kingdom. He was from those tribes, those 10 tribes that separated from the tribe of Judah. He was from those tribes of the north. So all of his people were wicked. We can read about their wickedness in 2 Kings chapter 14. They were wicked, yet they didn't repent when Jonah preached, but those Ninevites repented. So who's better, the Ninevites or the northern kingdom? The northern kingdom is not. That's the example that Paul is giving or the principle he's giving in the example with Jonah, his own people, and the Ninevites. So, how is it that we should be? Verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Notice he's using the word Jew in a true spiritual sense. You're a Jew... If you are inwardly, verse 29, circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and His praise is not from men, but from God. When we seek to praise, uh, seek praise from men, we don't submit to the Word of God. But when we submit to the Word of God, we understand that the Holy Spirit needs to change our heart for us to be circumcised inwardly where the value resides. That's the way... Nathaniel was. Nathaniel, he had both benefits. He, he was raised with the name Israel in the nation of Israel, but he had what he really should have, a change of heart on the inside. He had a circumcised heart. In verse 47, John 1, 47, when Christ says, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile, no deceit. He meant that Nathaniel had a circumcised heart. He did not mean that Nathaniel had no sin in his heart. He did not mean Nathaniel had no sin in his life. That is impossible. The only one who led a sinless life was our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody else lives in sin 
until he's converted, and then he starts to reject his sin. That's the way we all are. And none of us will be perfect until we meet Christ face to face. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have currently have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jesus did not mean Nathaniel was a sinless man. He never sinned in his thoughts, words, and deeds. In fact, his skepticism of the previous paragraph shows that he sinned because he sinned in thinking that nothing good can come out of a town that was a no-name town, a small town of Nazareth. He shouldn't have come to that conclusion. We know he did just sin in the previous paragraph with his skepticism. Thankfully, though, he overcame it. He overcame it, he came to Christ. And this is what true believers do. If our heart is circumcised and without deceit, the new man, the new man, the new heart, produces good fruit. Remember Jesus said, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. So then you, you will know them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 15 and 16. We are known by our fruits, but on the inside, the good tree will not produce bad fruit. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 48 about, verse 47 about Nathaniel. He has no deceit because he's a new man. He's pure in heart. Now you might say, was this possible before the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost? Yes, it was possible before the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. A couple of examples of this. The first one is from Psalm 24. Psalm 24, which has similarities to Psalm 15. But in Psalm 24, notice what it says. In 24, verse 4. 24, 4. Who is it that can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Not anybody can ascend to God's hill. In verse 4, it says, 24.4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. That, the, the person who has clean hands and a pure heart, he's talking about the spiritual nature of the person. So this person can ascend to the hill of the Lord. David certainly had a pure heart in terms of a converted heart. He had that. He wasn't perfect. We know that for sure. He was not perfect, but he had a pure heart. He was cleansed and purified by the Lord. And then Psalm 73. Psalm 73 and verse 1. Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. We have another example here of what we're talking about today. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He celebrates that fact when he starts this psalm. Israel, God is good to them, and then Israel has a synonym. Those who are pure in heart. So in verse 1, he's talking about true Israel, spiritual Israel, converted Israel, the Israel with the new heart. He's not talking about 
every person who has the name Israel, every descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's talking about what we said in our previous comments. Point number six, this is another name of the elect believers in Christ among Jews and Gentiles. Nathaniel had this, and all of us who are converted, we have the same. We have this conversion and a new heart that produces faith and repentance. That's what Jesus meant about Nathanael. It was rare throughout time, and it is rare today. Let's understand this and seek the Lord accordingly. Overcoming, overcoming whatever we need to overcome in order to pursue God, knowing that there are few in percentage of people who have this true name, Israel, and a true heart. So now verse 48, John 1, 48. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? He's amazed. How do you know me? How do you know? So he's not um, throwing off this compliment. He's not throwing off this co- commendation. He knows, based on his own heart, that he's not the man he used to be. He knows, based on his own conscience, that he's living a life with a good conscience. He is living his life that way. He's seeking to please God. He is not seeking to do wrong. He's seeking to do that which is right. This is what the Apostle Paul also said about himself in Acts 24.16. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Before God and men. Paul the Apostle sought to live that way, and we also seek to live that way. Nathaniel was like that, and that's why he is stunned and amazed. How do you know me? He's not denying that God had changed his heart. He acknowledges that and then proceeds from that by merely asking, simply asking, how do you know me? He wants confirmation about how Christ knows that his own life has been changed. After all, Christ had not met Nathaniel before. Nathaniel had not encountered Christ before. He was just introduced to Christ by Philip, his friend. Jesus answered and said to him, Jesus gives him the reason. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He's giving him a tangible way in which Nathaniel can have confirmation. And we all need this We all need this in our life. We need some kind of a tangible, physical way, practical way for us to be assured of the things that God says about us. Yes, what he says about us on the inside is true, but we want to know also in an external way that God is really with us. And so Nathaniel asks him that. How do you know me? And Jesus knows that this is what Nathaniel needs. So Nathaniel is told before Philip called you. So Jesus knew Philip called Nathanael. He knew that even though that had not that dialogue had not happened in the presence of Nathanael, Jesus knew that that Philip called him and invited him to come and see. He knew that. Verse 48. He also knew that he was under the fig tree. Christ knew that Nathanael was under the fig tree. The fig tree in the Old Testament, such as in Micah 4:4, When we are in peace, when we are 
in prosperity. When we are thinking of God and thankful of God, it is said of the Jews that they would be sitting under their fig tree. Well, a fig tree, if it were allowed to spread out, the fig tree can be tall enough, it could be wide enough, and it could have big enough leaves to be a shade tree. And the Jews would sit under the fig tree in the heat of the day or at other times of the day in order to enjoy the shade of the tree, but not just to twiddle their thumbs. It was the practice to go there to meditate upon God, to take the word of God there and to meditate on the laws of God under the fig tree. This was their practice. And Nathaniel, likely that's what he was doing under the fig tree. He was not only enjoying the shade and meditating upon God, but meditating upon the word of God, praying to God. He was there doing those things. And Jesus knew that. And he signifies that by saying, I saw you under the fig tree. And when I saw you there, um, I knew what you were doing and I knew the kind of person you were. John chapter 2, John 2, 23. John 2, 23. Jesus knows and Jesus sees. John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, Many believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus is at the feast. Many people are believing in him because of his signs, his miracles. They are believing in him, but John is implying here that it's a false belief. It's a false belief because of verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Literally, it says, but Jesus was not believing them. They were believing in him falsely, but Jesus was not believing in them truly. Why? 24, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in Nathanael because he is the Son of God, the omniscient God. Revelation 2, Revelation 2, 23, and I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your deeds. Jesus is talking. He's talking to the church, a local church, and warning them to avoid idolatry and immorality. And why? Because he searches all the hearts and all the minds, and he will render to everyone according to what he has done. Jesus saw Nathanael. In the full and true sense. Nathaniel knew this. Nathaniel understood already, based on what Philip had told him, based on this exchange with Christ, Nathaniel knew that it would be impossible for anybody to know that this was the case unless he had omniscience and unless he had all knowledge. And verse 49, John 1:49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi. You are the Son of God. You 
are the king of Israel. He gives him this name, Rabbi, teacher, and he doesn't mean in a regular sense any old teacher. We know he doesn't mean it in a regular sense, typical sense, because he calls him son of God and king of Israel. These unique titles. He believed that he was the true teacher of Israel, the one from whom we should learn all things. Nathaniel had that confession. No longer is Nathaniel trusting in himself. No longer is he trusting in the ways of the world. No longer is he trusting others. Now he is trusting Christ to be his only teacher. He had been trusting Christ by the Spirit of Christ already when he meditates on the Word of God. He had been doing it, but now he's going to be doing it as one of the 12 apostles of Christ. He's going to have the personal experience of being an eyewitness, an ear witness, a witness of every way, in every way, of the person and work of Christ. So he alone will be the teacher of Nathaniel. That's the attitude we should have. Before our conversion, we trusted ourselves and trusted others. After our conversion, we don't want to hear anyone's voice except the voice of Christ. Not to say there aren't teachers and pastors in local churches, but our focus and consumption, our, our minds should be on Christ. If Christ says it, it's true. If a teacher telling me what Christ says doesn't show me that Christ said it, it's not true. The teacher is wrong and Christ is right. He is the ultimate teacher, the ultimate rabbi, and we should pay attention to him. Moreover, verse 49, you are the son of God, son of God. He declares son of God. This honorific title that can only be ascribed to Christ, Messiah, only to him. What was he meditating upon? What was Nathaniel meditating upon? Perhaps, we don't know, we don't know which scripture he was meditating upon under the fig tree, but there is a psalm or two or three that does put the Son of God and King of Israel in one psalm. There are a few. If we're just to look at one example, like I said, we don't know which one, but one example of a psalm that combines the sonship of Christ plus the kingship of Christ together, it would be Psalm 2. Psalm 2. The nations of the world and even the Jewish people, they rage against Christ. It says in verses 1 and 2. Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. They all rage against Christ because they don't want Christ to control their life. But verse 4, Psalm 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. That's God. God is laughing. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And what will he say when he does so? This is a quote. God the Father is speaking. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. As for me, God, in order to take care of the rebellion of the people, he says, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Well, then who is God's king? It's Christ, according to verse 2. 
because they fight against the Lord and against his Christ, verse 2 says. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In verse 7, at the beginning of verse 7, it's Christ, the son, telling us what the father says. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He, the Father, said to me, the Father said to me, the Son, you are my Son. There we have it. Christ is the Son of God, the Father. He's the Son of God. And further, he's also a king, a king to whom our allegiance is to be. Verse 8, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, the same Son as verse 7. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Yes, Christ is the Son of God, and he is the King. He is the King of Israel. The King of which Israel? The King of true Israel. The King of spiritual Israel. He's the King of Nathaniel, and he's the King of all of us if we believe in the same gospel that Nathaniel believed. We believe in what the Bible says about who we are and our need for Christ, And what do we do? We acknowledge the greatness of God. We acknowledge his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. He is the son of God. We believe in the true identity of Christ and in his true ministry. He is Lord and he is savior. He is king in order to be that for us over our life. He is our king. Therefore, our allegiance, our submission, Our obedience is owed to him. Nathaniel confesses it with his mouth in these two ways. It also shows that Nathaniel believed what was before because John the Baptist said in chapter 1, verse 34, John 1, 34, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. What John the Baptist said of Christ, Nathaniel now confesses straight to Christ in his presence. He is the Son of God and the King of Israel. We ought not to go anywhere else. All that we need and all and, and the one we should obey is only our Lord Jesus Christ. So shall we invite others to come and see? Shall we also seek that others might have a new heart, no guile, purity of heart, just as God has given to us? And may we teach them to confess the truths of the gospel, that Christ is the Son of God and the King of Israel. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.